So there was a bit of like lore about it where apparently with Steve before passing away had said the thing that would make Apple TV the new incarnation of a successful would be Siri and then had no follow-up statement. So there, there was like no explanation for what that should mean. And there were a lot of eyes on how we would pull this off. What did that mean? We had to define it. Welcome to the Early Career Moves podcast, the show that highlights remarkable young professionals of color killing it on their career journeys. I'm your host, Priscilla Esquivel-Weninger, proud Texas Latina, daughter of immigrants, and lover of breakfast tacos. Meet me for a coffee chat every Friday as we dive into a special guest story and hear all about their challenges, milestones, and lessons learned. If you're a young professional of color and you're feeling lost in your career or just need a dose of inspiration, you're in the right place. Let's get started. Hey everyone, it's Priscilla. Welcome back to the Early Career Moves podcast. It's episode 29. We're getting so close to the end of the first season of the podcast. Next week, I'll be airing a solo episode episode 30 and it will be the season finale of the first season (laughs) of the podcast and yeah it's been an amazing ride you know we're in July of 2021 right now and it was exactly a year ago that I was in Austin on a hot July day 2020 in the middle of lockdown when I was just feeling so bored. I think I had watched just like all of these reruns of Selling Sunset, which I love that show, um, on Netflix. And my post-MBA job got delayed six months, so quite a long time. And I was sort of like twiddling my thumbs. And I suddenly just had this idea to create a podcast that was like a resource that I had always wanted but never really existed when I was in my early 20s figuring out my career moves and so yeah I had this idea to interview and start interviewing the amazing people in my network as you've probably noticed a lot of the folks that were in season one are people that I'm either friends with or connected to um, in my circles and I want to say thank you to those amazing people who said yes when they had no idea what the heck this podcast was going to be it means the world to me. And it's just been so cool to have had this idea in my head a year ago, and then work towards the next few months to to build this podcast. And here we are nearly 30 episodes later, a year later, and it's been beautiful. It's been a beautiful ride. Let's get into today's episode. Leah Napolitano. Wow, seriously, what a badass. Leah went to Wellesley with me. So she um, was my peer at Wellesley many years ago. And today she is the design director at Caffeine. And over her early career years, she's been an experienced designer. So she designs technology and has worked um, at Apple. And she, you know, has been a design consultant for Airbnb and Lyft. She's been a design lead for Siri. And she also was a design lead for Oculus Quest at Facebook. So really cool and unique career experiences. Leah is super humble. Like you're going to hear throughout the interview that she credits a lot of her success to luck. And while yes, luck is is often part of our career stories. I would if if I was here with Leah, I'd push her to to consider just how hard she's worked and how 
much work she's done to be prepared at the time that luck strikes, right? And so that's something that I just want to highlight um, from Leah's extraordinary career. You know, in, in her early 20s, she was pitching proposals to high-level executives at Apple. And so it's just really a phenomenal story. And if you're curious about this career path or just want to learn about what, what it means to be an experienced designer in tech, definitely this is the episode for you. And yeah, let's get into it. Okay, everyone, I am so excited to welcome Leah Napolitano to today's show. Welcome, Leah. Thank you. I am so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Great. So let's go ahead and, you know, just jump into your early career experiences and start with a little bit about your own personal background. Tell us a little bit about you. Great. I am glad to. Well, right now I am working as a design director at a startup in the Bay Area. And in terms of background, it was never really obvious that this is where I would wind up. I grew up in upstate New York. My parents were were entrepreneurs, so they hadn't gone to college and they were both really into the, I mean, they were just big hippies. So they're really into this like naturopathic massage scene and so they had started a company and I always, as a consequence, grew up around computers. And I, it, I didn't realize as a kid that when I was like six and messing around with clip art and printing out cards to, to give to my mom, like I was doing graphic design. And so there was never a word for it or a concept of design as a discipline in our house. But, but I guess I was really lucky to grow up with people who, who someone has recently described to me as like, oh, you grew up with designer founders. And so I definitely never thought about it that way, but, but had a chance growing up to design GeoCities websites and just really start playing around. I would be working out, I would, after school, walk over to their office and notice they had an HTML book lying around. And so start started learning all these things without really knowing I was learning anything. And when I went to college, I again, had no idea that design was a field and had been captain of my uh, high school's mock trial team. So I just assumed I would be a lawyer. And yeah, I chose Wellesley, which is where we both went to school, because I was really interested in international relations and foreign policy. And obviously, Madeleine Albright and Hillary Clinton having gone to Wellesley was a pretty big selling point for, for being somewhere where that happens. And so when I went, I only took computer science classes because I hated math and I needed to get out of our math requirement. And yeah, yeah, I just I really fell into figuring out that not only this discipline of computer science existed, which like I was way better at expressing logic through code than I was in the logic classes I was taking. And and so there was just this turning point of like, wait a second, so I can make computers do stuff and then make that look good and feel good and that's called computer science and that's called design and so so it just opened up this new world to me by going to Wellesley and figuring out that that I could connect these dots that had always been there in my life and make a career out of it. Wow. I had no idea that it was so, sort of like a happenstance that you took a computer yeah. science class. Yeah, absolutely. And it was really, I, yeah, it feels very serendipitous in hindsight. I going to a school that then I realized, oh, I can cross register in classes at MIT. And we had this amazing new professor who had just finished her PhD at Tufts. And 
oh, lo and behold, she specializes in human computer interaction. That sounds cool. Like there was just all of these opportunities that really came out of nowhere. And I was just really excited to, to get to benefit from them. And so you ended up choosing media arts and sciences as a major. How did you make that decision? And what experiences did it sort of lead to in college? I chose media arts and sciences also because I talked to the parent of another Wellesley student about what I was studying and and they had a career I was excited about. So I, at the time, had already made a switch to be a computer science and studio art double major. And I, because I I knew that these things were interesting, but even at the time I had sought out a mentor who like, I don't know, had made some WordPress plugins uh, that I had used. And so I reached out to this guy and said, Hey, I noticed that you are a coder and you're a like lawyer. Tell me about that. And he was like, well, if you get a degree in computer science, you could be an intellectual property lawyer. So be, be a computer science major. And I was like, okay, sounds great. So I was a double major and because I also still wanted to tap into this creative side. And I visited um, New York. I don't know if you recall Nicole Strand at school, but I've met her dad and he was running a, a boutique like ad agency in New York City. And when we were talking about it, I was just so, so enthralled. He was like, oh, like I'm doing this work with Monta Williams. And I like kind of got my start at NBC and it gave me all these connections and I, I too am from like farmland somewhere. And so I, I asked him like, hey, what you do seems really cool to be an entrepreneur and to be creative and have built this business. Like, I don't know, what should I major in? And he was like, well, I like, t- tell me what the options are. And I, I described media arts and sciences as one of them. And he was like, that, that 100% sounds like you should do. Like it's, it sounds like it will give you more opportunities to do independent study and define the fields that you want to explore. Like it has fewer requirements that are outside of your interests. And like, it will, it sounds like this will give you an opportunity to shape the career you want to have. And so that, that was it. Like that was the, when I realized that if I did media arts and sciences, I could take all the computer science classes that were aligned with software development and skip the ones that made me take math. And yeah, that was a big one. And then also on the studio art side, like it allowed me instead of taking a bunch of studio classes that would be four hours long, sketching a bowl of fruit, I could take the the classes that had to do with 3D modeling. And, and so that that was it. It was realizing that it was a really customizable program. I would get to um, have independent studies, work with professors I really respected and try new things that, that sold me on make, making that switch. Wow, that's so cool. And I know you definitely took advantage of, I think it was the MIT Media Lab. Was that it? Yeah. So the Media Lab, for those not familiar, is just this like legendary, I I would say like design group or school at MIT where all of these greats in human computer interaction have have taught, have established research practices and just built really incredible things. And it spans things from like smarter cities to uh, just really interesting tangible interfaces, like things you hold in your hand and, and they do computation. And so I, when I learned about the Media Lab, I saw an opportunity to do undergraduate research uh, in what's called a Europe. And so the group I chose to work with was called the Effective Computing Group, AFF Effective. And so a lot of their work was about designing 
software or hardware to to augment people's lives and be like play a supportive role. So I was doing some some game development to a researcher's project, which was to explore exposure therapy for kids with autism to things that might be triggers for them. And so the idea was, especially for kids with autism, there can be sounds that are really hard to hear. And so the idea was, if you give them a game in which they're getting to play with things that they enjoy, and you're slowly exposing them to this this sound and, and making it sort of I counterbalanced by the thing that this child might be really excited about, um, that it could be a great opportunity for software to, to play a role in health. And so that was a really cool project. And again, just gave me a, a really big appreciation for how software and, and computation can help people. And I also had a really cool opportunity to work with the Media Lab on a conference that they were hosting called the Tangible Embedded and Embodied interfaces, I believe, conference. And so that, again, gave me exposure to really cool researchers and and a, a greater appreciation for all the forms that computation and design can take. And so how did you end up at your first uh, job out of college at Apple? That was, I want to really say, like a lot of luck and then also really great mentorship. So I guess it was junior year, I knew that I wanted a career in design and I knew that I wanted an internship and I started applying around, but I guess I was applying for a few different things. I was looking at traditional agencies, like there's one called Huge that I was really excited about. I was even looking at Pixar and seeing if there was something interesting I could do there. And I mean, Apple was always um, just such a, I don't know, a, a holy grail to me where growing up, my, my parents had always been Again, we mentioned they were hippies. So they're really big Steve Jobs stands just because they were like, oh my God, like he's a successful businessman and he did a bunch of LSD. And so, (laughs) so like they were huge fans and I always grew up like being sort of regaled with like, oh my God, the iPod is this amazing invention. And, And so I was always really excited about Apple and it never really occurred to me that I could get a job there until a bunch of recruiters, like this recruiting team from Apple happened to come to town. And so often at Wellesley, because of being an all-women's college, and at the time, our computer science department, I think there were like nine computer science grads in my year 2010. So yeah, it was a super small department. So the fact that they came to Wellesley was extremely rare. Like normally they would just go to MIT and or Harvard. And they came to Wellesley um, because of super great guy, Andrew Williams, who was a robotic he was a professor at Spelman, so both the women's college and historically black. And he uh, coached the robotics team. And this is actually like a kind of like long story, but um, <laughs> he he coached the robotics team and had brought the robotics team to I think Palo Alto for a competition the the year prior to this. So I guess this was like maybe 2007, 2008. And he happened to take the team to all these different company campuses so they could get exposure to the world of tech. And when he brought the team to Apple, he it was like lunchtime at the cafe, and he happened to see Steve Jobs talking to Johnny Ive, the the head of design at Apple, and he was like, "Okay, this is my opportunity to like to want to say something and explain like I've brought this group of super talented young women here, like they're super excited about Apple." And, and also he was like, I don't want to approach Steve because it feels like a good way to have him like send me away. And so I just went up and said, Hey, like, 
Johnny, love your work. I'm here with this this amazing team of young black women roboticists. And I'm just like really excited to be here. Love what you guys do. And and Steve essentially cut him off and was like, hey, can you tell me how to hire more black engineers? And Andrew was like, I, I can help you with that. Like I have some ideas. And Steve was like, great, can you take sabbatical and help us for a year? Wow. And so yeah, yes. So so this guy happened to come to campus the year that I was looking for an internship because he to, to him it was really important to both go to historically black colleges and universities and also women's colleges because you just saw that like both populations were really underrepresented and and obviously cared about both of them really deeply teaching at Spelman. And so he came to Wellesley with a couple of recruiters and I was just super excited, reached out to him afterwards and was like, hey, I, I just like I would love to work at Apple. And here's a bit about me. If you have any ideas of, of fits or opportunities, like I'd love to know. And so he connected me with a, a bunch of different teams at Apple. And I was interviewing both for software engineering internships and design internships because I was still a computer science studio art double major. And I was, I think, like a backup candidate for a software engineering internship. And then I got through a lot of coaching by Ori I, uh, at Wellesley, I managed to get a design internship at Apple. And so it came down to that, like choosing a career in design over software engineering, like was also a bit of a, a consequence of, of which internship I was offered. And so, wow, so that yeah. brought, yeah, yeah, that brought me to Apple for my uh, internship. And then I, I tried not to screw up. I was just excited to be there. And so I was invited <laughs> back for full time. Oh, got it. Okay. So Talk to us a little bit about this title of designer and the different kinds of designers that exist in tech and the path that you ultimately went down. Sure. So designer in general, as a term, is so broad. And again, I really did not appreciate this or know about different forms of design going to college. So like, even outside of tech, but also inside of tech, you have industrial design. So you have like the design of objects that have a a use and a purpose and uh, and in tech, what that can look like is the early MacBooks, which had a handle on them. Uh, so Johnny Ive, who was running design at Apple, um, described that design choice as one where he was like, well, laptops are a new concept to people. And we wanted to teach them, teach people how to use them and like sort of point out the mobility of this device. So we put a handle on it. And so so that's how like industrial design can show up in tech. And then I think the there's also a really overloaded term that's used, which is product designer, which is for what it's worth what designers on my team are are called. And product designer can mean what I think Facebook sort of was Facebook and Google maybe were some of the pioneers in using that language. It can mean designing software that's meant to be a product that people use. But at Apple, if you're a product designer, you're probably working on like the hardware and mechanical design team, and you're actually like designing like layouts of motherboards and things. And so that's like, again, a, a very overloaded term. But the term that I tend to use, okay, also, there's like user experience, which I generally love. But there's been this really interesting conversation about like, referring to people who use your product as users like the word users is kind of just used to refer to drugs and technology. And so there's like a bit of a, yeah, there's a bit of a a backlash about using that term. So I referring to it as experience design, because you really are trying to like design an experience for someone to have, whether you're just designing a screen in an app, or you're thinking about 
the context in which someone is using that app. So like if you're designing for a Lyft driver, you're not just designing this mobile screen, you're thinking about the whole experience of like scanning, looking for the person you're going to pick up and checking in on that screen. And so I, I really like that way of putting it. But again, in hiring for my team, when I'm hiring someone who would be designing software and thinking about the context in which it's used, I tend to use product designer because that's where the industry is right now. And so what are the pipelines to get into these roles? Is it strictly a Bachelor of Science or BA in computer science? Or have you seen other avenues? Yeah, I feel like I've seen a lot of different avenues. So so now that I've graduated from uh, liberal arts college and not design school, I recognize how many amazing design schools there are and, and just amazing schools with great design programs. So one of actually a couple of amazing designers I know graduated from Carnegie Mellon, which is obviously like a really big university and they uh, have an awesome design program. And so there's that path of studying it in school. And then of course, there are a bunch of really great design schools in New York. You have Savannah College of Art and Design in Georgia. Like there's there's that path, which is academic. And then some of the designers that I really respected at Apple also didn't have any like college education. They just started doing great design work. And thanks to the internet, it's not as hard to be discovered for your craft as it used to be. And and so that has helped a lot of people without degrees wind up in the design field. And then also people with degrees, but who study psychology or linguistics and just have this like interest in how people's minds work. Also, I've seen gravitate toward design. And sometimes it's just through, again, trying stuff, putting it out there, uh, see, seeing what people think, getting attention for your work, and then getting hired. And sometimes it takes the form of someone deciding to uh, a class through something like General Assembly. Yeah. So I'd love to hear about your first job at Apple, You know what, what it was like to start there. How comfortable was it for you learning curve-wise, considering you were coming from a liberal arts background and not necessarily a design school background? It was, I, wa- I want to say comfortable for a number of reasons. One, again, mentorship. Um, I, again, have been really lucky at Wellesley to recognize that this professor I had could teach me about design principles and point me to books I should read and, and concepts like gestalt theory about like when things are close together versus far apart, people associate them. Like there, there are all of these concepts in design that I got to learn about at an academic level and was able to seek out. And then when I went to went to Apple and was interning there, I actually was hired into a group that was not a design group. So I was hired into like global business development. And I was, yeah. And so I, my job was like, hey, can you, it's kind of dating. If someone from design is listening to this, is like dating me a bit. But it was like, can you design a flash dashboard for us where we can look at all these metrics and can you give us a style guide for our charts? And so it was kind of like a great entry-level design job. I was able to teach myself in parallel with doing the things. And also I wasn't naturally going to get mentorship. My manager was not a designer. And so I found the one designer in the building and I was like, hey, uh, like, can I, can you be my like surrogate manager? Can I, can I like reach out to you and, and have you help me think through things and have you help me make my work better? And so, so this guy, Steve, who had gotten his master's in human computer interaction at, I think, University of Michigan was like, thank you for asking. I, I would love to help you. And so when I came to Apple full-time, 
I was hired into his group. So I then, yeah, made this switch into design that way. And then it was just like, I, I was just lucky to have a lot of really good managers in the beginning who, when I, for example, didn't understand that a huge part of design is storytelling and salesmanship and being able to help someone go on the journey with you of how you got some, I really didn't understand what a skill that was. And I had managers who were very empathetically like, hey, so I see you getting frustrated that people aren't listening to you. Like maybe you should be better at helping them understand what you're proposing. And so again, like finding people who who not only had talent, but also a talent for sharing it and a lot of empathy for someone early in their career helped me get leveled up a lot so that when I did switch into working on consumer products at Apple, working on Siri and Apple TV, I had like some really great fundamentals as a designer and then also as like a designer in the workplace. Yeah. And it sounds like you were also very open to feedback and you were very proactive about seeking that feedback. Absolutely. My husband uses this term, which I think applies to uh, like really any discipline, which is when you're early in your career, just be a stem cell, like just try to soak up at your environment, the best things from it, uh, adapt constantly, just really seek to like learn and grow. And I don't know if that should ever change in someone's career. I think it is a fun way to stay open to opportunities and test yourself and just get better and better. But yeah, that that's a huge that was always a huge part of the process is oh, something I don't like I want to learn. So it's so cool that you got to be a design lead for Siri. How did that come about? And what was that experience like for you? That experience was awesome. And the way it came about is, again, just like being very lucky to to have um, tapped into, but also grown a really supportive network. And so when I was working on design for internal tools and projects, I became close with this woman who ran a rotation program, which actually I had actually been hired into. And she was just super badass, had been at Apple forever and then left. And I think like got her personal Steve Jobs phone call and came back. And she had a daughter who was an engineering program manager. So what that meant at Apple is someone who like really is helping define the shape of the thing that we built, helping trains run on time, like just a master communicator and organizer of, of outcomes. And so she had a daughter who did that on the Siri team in the iOS group. And I had been excited about Siri since I was at Wellesley. Siri had come out as its own independent project from SRI, which is an organization in Palo Alto. It just seemed like it totally hit on all of the human computer interaction things I was excited about, like creating this natural interface, building on what people already do, how they communicate, and then saying, hey, what if you could just take that and and communicate with the computer? And so I had always thought it was really cool. And when when this woman, Cheryl, and my organization mentored her daughter worked on Siri, I was like, hey, love you, love that I've been doing this job. And I have always wanted to do that kind of work. And I would love it if you could introduce me to your daughter, Stacy. And so I met Stacy over lunch at, you know, Cafe Max, which is the the uh, cafeteria on Apple's campus. And she was like, yeah, I think we're hiring for a designer. You you should apply. And so she introduced me to Harry Sadler, who had been the guy who designed the Siri experience um, before it was acquired by Apple and continued to be in that role. 
And he was just such a badass. Like he and I, actually my earlier manager, had both been at Apple in the late 80s prior. Yeah. And while he was there, he worked with this pretty legendary guy, Don Norman, who a lot of people credit with the concept of like UX design, user experience design. So they had worked together in this advanced technologies group at Apple. And and I just recognized he was someone I could learn so much from. And fortunately, he I seemed to look at me over that meeting and think that I at least was someone he could teach a lot to. And so I went through a round of interviews, did like a very formal process to make the switch over. And yeah, like once I was on the Siri team, there there were so many great opportunities I, I had. I was I shared an office with one of our lead engineers who every time I had an idea would like really, we would have these two, three hour long, like friendly debates that made my work so much better. And I, I just can't imagine how much I would have missed out on if we didn't have that opportunity. And I didn't get to learn from him as well about how the technology worked. And then becoming design lead for things like Apple TV and HomeKit and HomePod, all of these things where like voice had to be a really important part of how you interact with the technology. That just, I think, came from doing good work with a lot of amazing people that again, I just really tried to like soak soak up as much as I could from. Wow. Okay. And so what was the biggest highlight for you working on the Siri team? That's a fun question. Okay. So working on Apple TV and representing Siri was super exciting because it was a project where I I I came in that that colleague who had the engineer who had been my office mate was going to be working on it with me. So it had a, a big like a lot of secrecy, like for a while, he couldn't tell me what he was working on. And then I got disclosed on the project as it's called, because Apple, again, internally has such a like, a high amount of secrecy, you hear like a series of letters and numbers. And that's a code word for a project. And like, no one will tell you what it is if you don't like have a record of being disclosed on it. So finally, I I was assigned to the project, I was told, hey, this is a thing we're doing. And here are all the people that you'll be working with. And through that project, one, I was coming in with really high expectations for what Siri should be able to do. So the there was a bit of like, lore about it, where apparently with Steve before passing away had said the thing that would make Apple TV the new incarnation of it successful would be Siri, and then had no follow up statement. So there, there was like no explanation for what that should mean. And there were a lot of eyes on how we would pull this off. What did that mean? We had to define it. And so I, what was cool is I, again, was getting to collaborate with just these incredible engineers on the Siri side who were very open to doing things in a new way and building out the architecture to support really cool use cases. Like if a movie is on screen and you say, play this, like it should know what you're talking about. Or if you were to say, hey, find romantic comedies from the 1990s, like it should be able to pull those up for you. So they were really responsive to and excited about the potential for natural language to help people get what they wanted very quickly. And then also I got to work with all of these external design teams. So I was getting to work with the Apple TV design team, which lived inside the iTunes group. And that was just like, they had a cool studio. I got to go over there and work with them. That team manager was, I became again, a mentor whose company I in fact work for today. And, and then also gave me exposure to the human interface group at Apple, which 
um, is like the really like old school upper echelon of design that's establishing all of these patterns across devices. Like the original iPhone design is something that they incubated and created. And every really interesting, exciting innovation had had come from that group, uh, like in terms of its final form. And so I was getting to work closely to them, pitch them. I And just in terms of the challenge of like being really visible and pitching senior executives who had been there for like 20, 30 years, and then also get to do really good design work, refined and honed through conversations with all of these designers that I was just getting exposure to. It was just a dream. It was so, so cool and exciting. Yeah. And so in those moments when you did have to go pitch these big proposals or ideas that you had, how did you like manage your nerves or like your, were there moments where you doubted yourself or did you just go for it? I I didn't doubt myself, but as I'm saying that, I'm realizing it's a lie. Uh, if, if if my husband heard me saying that, he'd be like, that's extreme bullshit. Like before a big <laughs> presentation, you would 100% cry the night before and think it would go horribly. So I love presenting. It's actually something that after making a point to hone it as a skill, I feel very comfortable with storytelling in that setting. I think what made it doable on the day is I just like practiced and rehearsed and really refined my pitch so much beforehand. It would be like a ton of conversations with engineers and designers alike to make sure that what I was bringing was the best version of the thing. I I would use those conversations to really refine my talking points, see what resonated for people. And so the whole, like there was just so much pr- preparation that would go into a presentation to make sure that if, and this is still how I work, like if there are people in the room, I would want to know what what my story is, why what I'm presenting is good. And I would also want to know enough about their background or what might like what they might be looking out for to make sure that I spoke to the things that they needed to know before they had to ask me about them. And so also that could turn into a really huge presentation and story that's going in a million different directions for people. And so then there's also this like curation step of like, okay, cool, what's my core story? And if this guy asks me this question, which he probably will because he has this bias. Here's what my answer will be. And I have that in the appendix. And like, I will just sound really fluent and competent. And so, so a lot of work and thought went into it and realizing that like presenting and storytelling is as much a craft as design. I uh, made it possible to go through those presentations and like in the moment, in game time, be very confident and comfortable. Yeah, because it's not just being really great at what you're doing. It's like selling people on your idea too, right? Totally, totally. Because like, I don't know, if you walk into a like a secret locked down room with a bunch of executives who are known for making great decisions and and hard calls, and you're in your early to mid 20s, and you're a woman, and that's kind of unusual in that context, like, you you want to, you really want to not only avoid them thinking you don't know what you're talking about, but you also want them to be kind of really impressed and be like, Oh, not only does this idea make a lot of sense, but like, look at this whippersnapper, like they know what they're talking about. And so a lot of it was like, how can I build trust both in the ideas that I'm presenting and also build people's trust in me? So I don't need to work this hard to convince them of things in the future. Amazing. Well, Leah, I feel like I could keep you here for like 30, 45 more minutes. There's so much in your early career journey that is just so interesting and so unique. So thank you so much for for being here and for sharing all this with us. Thank you for, for the opportunity to share. This is exactly the kind of content that would have 
probably helped me so much in my career and that learning from other people and just knowing more about their journeys and finding the, the seeds and elements that really connected for me was such a huge part of my own career definition. So thank you for the opportunity to share. Thanks for tuning into the Early Career Moves podcast. Be sure to visit ecmpodcast.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and become a part of our newsletter community. And if you love this episode, head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. Talk to you next week.